On April 21st, 2021, Patrick O'Shaughnessy tweeted out a request for clever customer acquisition costs. I thought that was a really interesting prompt, so I sat down, I did some research, I looked at the comments that he had gotten on Twitter, and I found a couple examples that um, maybe aren't quite customer acquisition, like strategies or costs, but they are interesting ways to acquire customers. This research was like a little tricky because what is a customer acquisition cost? Like what, how do you account for that? What is a strategy? What is marketing? What is something that isn't marketing? I was listening to some of the Terry O'Reilly podcasts and he talks about how merchandise is a form of uh, marketing for movies. And I was kind of listening and and Terry O'Reilly is like right on. He has some really interesting ideas. I've read his books. I've enjoyed them. But I was listening and it's like, well, um, I don't think merchandise is marketing for movies. I think it's the other way around. I think movies are marketing for the merchandise. Uh, And so... Keep that in mind as we think about uh, a couple of these ideas. Um, First, we're going to go back to 1979. Actually, like all stories, this one starts before that. This one starts in 1938. And in 1938, the McDonald's brothers open up their first store. They're selling BBQ, PBJ, and pie. Oh, they're also selling hamburgers. After the McDonald's brothers notice that hamburgers are the bulk of their sales, they close for three months, retool, and reopen with a focus on hamburgers and milkshakes, the latter of which attracts the attention of a milkshake equipment salesman named Ray Kroc, who uh, visits the store in 1955, and he's totally awestruck at the amount of traffic that they're getting in what Croc terms the sleepy San Bernardino town. Um, So Croc, after visiting the McDonald's brothers, he agrees with them to become a licensee. He opens up a store in Chicago. Uh, By 1961, uh, Croc is in it and he owns the entire company. And it may not seem like McDonald's is like this great customer acquisition company. Like they don't do anything clever or they're not solving any like really interesting problems. But they kind of always have. In his book, Grinding It Out, Ray Kroc opens with this. I have always believed that each man makes his own happiness and is responsible for his own problems. It is a simple philosophy. Kroc's philosophy, Croc's strategy, his technique was that if something uh, was tried and it worked, he would do it. It didn't really matter where it was coming from. Uh, So we can fast forward uh, to 1962 and Croc has a problem. One of his franchisees is going rogue because, you know, the idea of the McDonald's franchise is that you go to a McDonald's and it's a McDonald's. It's it's not like you're having uh, something at Lou's Restaurant. But in 1962, Lowgrown was deviating from the norm. See, Lou's problem was that his franchise, which was outside of Cincinnati, was located in this heavily Roman Catholic neighborhood. And so the six or so Fridays during Lent, uh, Grown's customers dried up. He said that some Friday sales would total $75. Uh, in the Cincinnati Inquirer. This is uh, how he described what happened next. So I invented my fish sandwich, developed a special batter, made the tartar sauce, and took it to headquarters. 
Ray Kroc had a meatless sandwich, too. He called his sandwich the Hula Burger. It was a cold bun and a slice of pineapple, and that was it. Ray said to me, Well, Lou, I'm going to put your fish sandwich on a menu for a Friday, but I'm going to put my special sandwich on, too. Whichever sells the most, that's the one we'll go with. Friday came, and the word came out. I won hands down. I sold 350 fish sandwiches that day. Ray never did tell me how his sandwich did. The filet of fish was the first of many bottom-up additions to the McDonald's menu. Others are the Shamrock Shake, the Egg McMuffin, the Big Mac, and the Happy Meal. We can fast forward again to 1976. Yolanda Fernandez Cofino and her husband go to work at the first and almost bankrupt McDonald's in Guatemala. They do all the basic stuff that a restaurant turnaround needs. They clean, they redo staffing, they redo marketing, and they also fiddle with the food. And Yolanda creates the Menu Ronald to help families enjoy their time more at McDonald's. What is the Menu Ronald? It's, it's the kids' menu. It's smaller portions, it's different packaging, it's different bundling. So, like the filet o fish sandwich a decade and a half before, the idea made it to McDonald's corporate in Chicago. And there they asked their marketing manager, Bob Bernstein, what he might do with it. Bernstein isn't quite sure. He remembers sitting at home and he's drinking coffee and is watching his son eat cereal one morning and then it, it comes to him because Bernstein realizes that his son does what everyone does when they have cereal. They read the box. And what kids want at McDonald's is they want something to do while they eat the food. So Bernstein uh, commissions the design of this uh, Happy Meal box. And at first, the tchotchkes in it are kind of small, and they're McDonald's branded. And eventually, those things would grow to include theme toys, movie tie-ins, and zeitgeist toys, like the somewhat disastrous 1999 collaboration with Beanie Babies. And this was a really interesting bundling. It was an interesting customer acquisition strategy because the Happy Meal would go on to account for between like 10% and 30% of all of McDonald's sales. So that's just kind of neat that none of that stuff was necessarily new at the Happy Meal. It was the similar foods or the same foods, but it was different sizes and combinations and packaging. And if you think about this McDonald's Happy Meal, it was like... Um, it was like nothing. It was it was cardboard with some printed things on the outside, but but it really worked. For our next stop, let's head up to uh, 1993. So in 1993, we have a slightly different situation where McDonald's, you know, they had people coming in. They just needed more people, or they needed different people, or they needed people to come more frequently. And by repackaging something they already had, they were able to acquire more customers. Um, in 1993, we're going to look at a technology example. And it's funny to think about how technology has changed. Like in 1993, there was no technology out in the world, not like today. I remember our family's first computer was sometime around 1993-94. Um, the first game I can remember playing was Math Blaster in Search of Spot. I remember the first two Warcraft games. I remember we get this uh, encyclopedia on a CD and it was really good because it had like lots of stuff on it that you had never accessed before. Like it had the Martin Luther King Jr. speech, it had the, um, the astronaut bouncing on the moon. but 
but there were things that you still couldn't get. You, there were searches where it just came up empty and you're like, I know this is a thing in the real world, but it wasn't on the encyclopedia. Uh, and this was also the time where you had to go to a store and get a box and the box would have a manual in it. These, these big computer software boxes, they were like the size of cereal boxes now. So in 1993, the transaction costs like were really high, not just in dollars, but in knowledge. You had to know your OS, your memory. Uh, there were different size floppy disks you had to be aware of. And so it was not consumer friendly like app stores are now. Uh, 1993 is when Jan Brandt arrives at AOL, and her first push to get AOL into people's homes was, was just to send it right to them, just send it to their doorstep. Uh, this is what Jan said on the Internet History Podcast. We started packaging them, this is the installation discs, in boxes and tins and things like that. It was my absolute belief that you could not send someone a package in the mail, and I don't mean an envelope, I mean a package that you could feel, and not open it. I felt it was constitutionally impossible for someone to get a small box in the mail and not be inspired to open it. This ended up working really well. Brant would go on to say that she's been uh, part of a lot of project launches, a lot of direct marketing, and sending a box to someone in the mail was like a 10% uptake. It wasn't people like, oh, um, we know that 10% of people are opening these. It was like, 10% of all the discs they sent out in this little packaging, that those people had an account and were paying for service at AOL. It was uh, what Brandt calls stratospheric response. Um, this idea wasn't just Jan's. It was kind of a collaboration later on. Um, Remember the AOL CDs, these, these compact discs were freaking everywhere. And, and part of it was that uh, Jan saw that this shipping things to people's homes worked. And part of it was Steve Case had worked at Procter & Gamble. And one of the best ways to get people to try new products was to give them samples. Um, Case said that, you know, they used to do these little shampoo samples in magazines. Um, the thinking for Brandt and Case was that they could spend spend 10% of a customer's lifetime value to acquire a customer. And in those terms, uh, in those terms at AOL in the mid nineties, that was $35 a customer because their lifetime value was $350. So this amount of spending, this like <laughs> this investment meant that at one point AOL was producing half of all the compact discs in the entire world, which was a figure that I found online and I was like, there is no way that's possible. But according to a Quora thread where Brandt and Case uh, both answer themselves, uh, that, that proved to be true. Uh, so let's take a like kind of adjacent stop. Let's jump forward just ahead to uh, 1996 for another technology example. I swear, one of the best parts of recording these is finding these songs I used to like. So in 1996, we're still faced with that same situation as we have technology as being part of the culture, but not part of the homes and the daily lifestyle. Um, I remember right around this time, I had this super cutting edge English teacher. Uh, her name was Mrs. Housepian, and she offered this web design club slash class at the school. and. Each week, the people that were in this club slash class would come in and we'd, we'd share different 
um, websites we found that were good for things. Like I distinctly remember coming in and being like, oh, you need to try out this web browser because the results on here are pretty good. So it wasn't back in the day where in the, like, oh, you need to use Yahoo or Google's the best or use DuckDuckGo because it's this. It was like every week people were coming in with two or three different website suggestions because at the time you, you just didn't know. And for a while there was a site called Metacrawler that was like the best search engine that everyone had to use. So that's the landscape where in 1996 we get Hotmail, founded by Sabir Bhatia and Jack Smith. And <laughs> Hotmail is actually named after the HTML protocol, like Hotmail. Um, and so along with the other early web services like Metacrawler, they, you know, they were relying on this weird word of mouth thing for these people that were part of internet clubs, uh, you know, telling each other about it. So, so um, we have Sabir and we have Jack and uh, they build this and they pitch it to venture capitalists and, and the venture investors are like, okay, this looks good as a service. We like this email thing, but how are you going to how are you going to get the word out? And it's like, well, you can't advertise because there's there's no freaking money here. You're offering a free email service. Like, how are you going to charge for that thing? So um, one member of the venture team is Tim Draper. Uh, Draper had done a MBA at Harvard in 1984. And so he was familiar with this like case study approach to figuring things out. And so uh, and so Draper's experience is uh, recalled by Adam Pennerberg in the book Viral Loops. And so Draper's sitting there and he's thinking about this and he's like, well, how do we get the word out? And he thinks back to this case study they did at Harvard about, um, about Tupperware parties, how people could hold parties for their friends and then sell, you know, the product like the Tupperware to their friends and then and then at some point, like some number of the salespeople, some number of the guests would become salespeople and they would refer more business. And so Tupperware uh, was the way that people were spreading word. And he's like, I wonder if something like this would work for uh, for Hotmail. So um, so Draper says, hey, you know, for this Hotmail, we, we have to, uh, I wonder if we can put an email signature on the bottom. So he goes to, uh, to Jack and Sabir and he's like, hey, could you put like text on the bottom of every email? And they're like, yeah, that's technically possible, but why would we want that? And Draper's like, so even if like you forward an email to someone, so like if you send it to me and then I send it on to someone else, like that text will always stay on the bottom and the founder's like, yeah, 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 we can do that. But like, why would we want to? And Draper's like, I think we should do this. It'll be a good way to get the word out. We should have it read, uh, PS, I love you. Get your free email at hotmail.com. And the founders are like, that's stupid. We're not putting PS, I love you. Get your free email at hotmail.com at the bottom of this thing. So it's like, fine, you know, launch it, launch it. Let's see how it goes. And so... Um, Hotmail launches July 4th, 1996, and it's like just kind of fine. There weren't enough internet clubs slash classes that were talking about it at the time. And so and so uh, the founders uh, go back to Draper and they're like, all right, we tried it. I guess we'll try your thing, but we're not putting the PS I love you part. And, and Draper's like, fine, get it out there. Um, two months after the email signature is added, signups uh, rise exponentially from hundreds a day to thousands a day. Uh, six months after launch, they have a million users. A month after that, they have two million users of Hotmail.com. Um, and so that really worked. I remember being back in the day, like as people were just like, it was like being thirsty for something. You're like, you know, what do I use on this internet? It seems really cool, but I don't know really how to get my use out of it. 
and uh, and something like that. I definitely remember having Hotmail accounts uh, at the time. So so fast forward to 2007, and we get sent from iPhone signatures, and I thought for sure in researching this episode I would find something where there was like an Apple designer who said yeah I remember this Hotmail thing and it worked really well and like nothing on the internet said that it wasn't um it wasn't out there and maybe it was a system thing where you know when the iPhone launches in 2007 it's just a different world and people are aware of it and it's different marketing um one thing I did find that was kind of interesting is that in a study uh, from 2012, researchers looked at how forgiving people are about spelling and grammatical mistakes, and it turns out that if you have a sent from you know iPhone or sent from mobile device or some kind of signature like that, people are a little more forgiving um, it, with your uh, writing mistakes. So maybe that's a reason to keep it on, even if it's not a good customer acquisition strategy. Uh, okay, let's jump ahead couple more years to like right around 1999. Did I say 1999? Well, this part of the story actually begins in 1975, where we get the re release of the Sony Betamax, um, a technology that would like lose to the RCA VHS uh, a few years later, um, by 1983, VHS players are in about 10% of homes. Two years after that, the number's climbing to 30%. Um, as the number of VHS players climbed, Blockbuster opened its doors, and the home rental revenue business topped the box office revenue business for the first time in, like, 1985. So we have the home video market, which is rising. In 1995, Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings are in the earnout phase after a uh, acquisition, and they're talking about business ideas, and they're going back and forth about, you know, maybe we could do this e-commerce video rental business system, but the, really the economic model wasn't there. The business model was terrible. Uh, VHSs were... Um, supplied by the distributor so you couldn't just go to the store and get one it was costly to ship um but then but then we have something called the dvd and so like records or cassettes or cds mark or reed could just go to the store and, and buy one this is how um mark randolph recalls it in a biz journal's san jose interview one of the founding myth stories that is actually very true is the fact that Reed and I did go down to Logos in Santa Cruz and bought a UCD and then went to one of the little gift shop stores on Pacific Avenue. We bought ourselves one of those little blue envelopes that you put in greeting, greeting cards in and we mailed a CD to Reed's house. We go up the steps to the Santa Cruz post office and dropped it in with a single first class stamp and by the next day when he came to pick me up he had the envelope in his hand. It had gotten to his house with the unbroken CD in it. That was the moment where the two of us looked at each other and said, this idea might just work. So we've, we've got a couple like different things that are conspiring to work together. Like there's this idea about being too early or being too late. And really what being too early or being too late is, is you've got this idea about how the world is going to develop and then your perception of the world is true and so we've got the uh, transition from the VHS to the DVD player 
we've got this opportunity that's provided by first class mail um but we don't really have like dvd players vhs players are still the norm from 1985 to 2001 vhs players were the predominant form of entertainment people had and, and that was a problem that that uh reed and mark had to overcome I was trying to like get some perspective. Like I remember that uh, internet class slash club, but I couldn't exactly remember like how prevalent DVDs and and CDs and that stuff was. So uh, I found a Best Buy ad from the 1999-2000 era. Uh, it had four handheld camcorders uh, advertised, between four and nine hundred dollars. Uh, financing was available. A VHS player was on sale for ninety nine dollars. A DVD player was on sale for $200. The James Bond DVD, The World Is Not Enough, was $20. And looking through this Best Buy ad, it was really interesting how important music was, or at least that the music advertising business model was pretty profitable because there was like portable CD players, there was car stereo systems, there were MP3 players, um, there were those Remember those like big stereo systems that came in like three pieces and it would have like a three or a five disc CD changer on the top and it had AM FM radio in the middle and then had a cassette deck on the bottom. Like those were still being advertised around this 1999 to 2001 phase. Um, so right around this we get this like the transition, the beginning of the transition from VHS to DVD. In 2001 Blockbuster starts to shift they dedicate about 25% of their floor space to DVDs now from VHS. Uh, November 2001, there was a half a million DVD players sold. And Patty McCord worked at Netflix like from the beginning with Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings. And she thought this whole thing was kind of ridiculous. Uh, she said that there were only three people she knew that had DVD players and they were all the geeks, what you know, the early adopters. Uh, she said that she had kids at home and they had all these VHS tapes and like these things were expensive and you lined them up and you displayed them and like once you got them you know you thought they were <laughs> you thought they were yours you just assumed that oh, I'm gonna buy this content I'm gonna have it and enjoy it forever uh, and so she doesn't quite see how all of this is going to work but eventually the DVD player system comes along by 2001 DVD players uh, turn out to be like the Christmas gift and so, um, and so Netflix actually like kind of got this right where they, you know, you don't want to be too early, you don't want to be too late. And so what Netflix had been doing was they were getting their coupons into the boxes of the DVD players. So that in 2001, when DVD players really took off in sales, if you bought a Panasonic, your RCA, uh, Magnavox, whatever you ended up buying, there was a coupon for free Netflix rentals in there. And like this kind of feels like the least direct customer acquisition strategy that I was able to research. But on the other hand, people really don't like ambiguity, especially technology in like 99, 2000, 2001. This was right after the dot-com bubble. You know, people were like, oh, this internet thing is gonna be awesome, and then crash. And so, you know, people were hesitant, and I can't help but think that having access to these DVDs, being like, oh, okay, I'm in the store, I'm buying this thing. Um, at least it comes with this. You know, I've, you know, I've got my library of VHS movies, but I can start doing this now. Uh, in 2000, there were 6 million DVD players. 
Uh, there are 12 million of them uh, sold the next year. Netflix subscriber numbers doubled over that same time. Uh, two years later, Netflix is sending out 100,000 DVDs a week. By 2003, Bill Gurley is writing about a $43 DVD player at Walmart. Um, two years after that, DVD sales will top at $16 million. The VHS player got a 15-year run. We are five years into this DVD uh, rising in prominence, and it has already peaked. Part of the reason is that two years later, Netflix starts to offer streaming. One other really interesting observation from Mark Randolph in that Biz Journals interview is what he says about Netflix at the time. And um, he says that Netflix wanted to be a place for movies you love. And that is such a wonderful phrase because it's not like, we're the streaming site, or we're the DVD site, or we're this or that. You just just come here for movies you love. Um, and I just really liked how Randolph was thoughtful enough to bring that up. And I think that's the kind of thing that really helps direct a company's internal culture as well as their um, external branding. Okay, let's go ahead and do one more. For this one, we're gonna go ahead to, uh, to 2004. Zillow launches in 2004, but for this one, we also have to go back in time to 1991. Rich Barton is a product manager for MS-DOS 5. Barton is traveling a lot. Remember, like, the 90s software technology is in people's minds, but not in people's homes. You got to get out there. You got to pound the pavement. You got to talk to people. So Barton is traveling. He'd call corporate travel at Microsoft, and he would be like, listen, I need to go from Washington to St. Louis to Austin, Texas, and back. And he would hear this typing in the background. And Barton is like, oh, I just, I just want to do this myself. I want to be able to look at the itinerary, pick when I leave, see when it works, and see why it works. So Barton is thinking about this as he's traveling all the time. And he's like, why don't, why don't we just make this? So he goes to Bill Gates um, to be his like venture capitalist at the time. And he says, hey, we should do this travel thing. Here's why. Um, here's the advantages. Here's the drawbacks. In 1994, Gates gives Barton the green light and some funding. Expedia.com ships to the web in 1996. And um, by 1999, they want to advertise to acquire customers. Barton goes to Gates again and he asks for $100 million. And he gets it. Uh, and it works. In 2003, Expedia.com was successful enough that Barry Diller and IAC purchased the company, Rich Barton, after a successful career at Microsoft and starting and founding Expedia uh, within Microsoft and serving for a brief while uh, as the organizational leader, retires never to be heard again to Florence, Italy. But that's not the full story. In 2004, Barton is back in the United States and he's back talking with his former Expedia co-founders and like they want to move back and they want to move up. Barton just got home from being overseas so he needs a place to live. So him and his former Expedia.com co-founders are like looking on the internet for something and we can probably see where this is going and they're like, why is the information we need not available 
like at our keystrokes. So it's the same situation as Microsoft. Barton wants this information uh, direct to consumer. So he's thinking about, you know, what can we do? Oh, let's build a website where uh, people can search for homes. So just like Expedia, Barton goes ahead and he founds it. He gets a little bit of funding. He goes back to his venture investors and he says, hey, we need advertising money. We need $100 million for wide advertising. And he gets it. No. So while the Zillow and Expedia foundings are really similar, the business model had changed. So like back in 1999, you could definitely do widespread advertising to gain customers and start to acquire customers that way. But by like 2004, you couldn't do that. And, and part of the reason was it was busier, but part of the reason was also the totally different business model. Um, the way Expedia worked was that if somebody logged into Expedia and they booked a hotel, a flight, a car rental, um, Expedia got like a little bit of that. They got a percentage or a cut or, uh, or somebody paid them. But Zillow, the business model was to bring in home searchers and then they were going to sell ads on the side. Zillow was going to be like the Google, but just for home sales. So you know, you go on Google and you search for some product or another and you get the Google sponsored links. That was gonna be Zillow. That was Zillow's business model, but like instead of sponsored links, it was just gonna be for real estate agents. So, you know, if you're a real estate agent in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you could go on Zillow and be like, listen, if, if someone searches in this area, I want my picture and face and um, uh, my phone number and my website to come up and, and they would pay some, they would pay Zillow for that. And then if you were a home searcher in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and you search, you would see that realtor's information. It was really collaborative. And so the problem with acquiring customers was what Bill Gurley told Rich Barton. He says, if you're buying ads to sell ads, then you're arbitraging traffic and that dog don't hunt very long. So Zillow had to get creative. They had to get like a word of mouthy kind of thing going. And so we have the Zestimate. The Zestimate was a brilliant form of viral marketing. People spread it around. It crashed the site for 36 hours and just a simply incredible way to drive traffic that's not advertising, but like not an easy one to come by. So those are different customer acquisition strategies. What like are the lessons, like the big picture ideas? One is that you gotta create something people want. And if you create something that people want, there might even be a slightly better fit to the thing that you have. Um, the best product really solves a job to be done and the less it, the better it solves a job to be done, the less that it needs this customer acquisition tool. We can look at the Happy Meal as a way that you can repackage things that you're already doing in a way that customers will really find appealing. Another idea for customer acquisition strategies is to ask how a problem has been solved before. Um, you know, Tupperware inspired Hotmail email signatures, shampoo samples inspired AOL discs. My favorite example of this is when um, the founder of Zappos was pitching Tony Shea and Tony Shea's like, listen, nobody is going to buy shoes without trying them on. Everyone does that. Like, you have to try on shoes before you do this. And the founder is like, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, but people do this all the time. The, you know, the magazine clothing industry is this large and shoes are this percentage of that. And Tony Shea was like, oh, wow. Yeah, people are already doing this. We need to, to figure out a way to make this fit for the internet. 
And then the third, like, kind of lesson is you just have to test and see. None of these things that were done were super expensive. Even the Cincinnati filet fish example, uh, when that franchisee tried that, he figured out that he could make his, uh, he could have the fish cost for that sandwich be 30 cents a sandwich. And by the time they tested it and they found that it succeeded, McDonald's said that they only had to get the price down to 25 cents before it would work. Uh, for the franchises nationwide. And so uh, the the costs aren't a lot. You know, the Hotmail example was just a little bit of code that you can kind of turn on and off. Um, so that's just like a couple of examples. I hope this was a good opportunity to expand your mind. If you listened to the first version of this one and the audio was terrible, I am very, very sorry about that. Hopefully this one is um, a lot better. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.